based on what we've talked about before, the campuses that are making progress in doing this, they have a clear process for doing this work. They are involving stakeholders across multiple areas of the campus. There's leadership, there's clarity and goals, there's accountability. Those that are doing that and really lifting up not only just the talk, but really trying to say, this is how we're measuring and how we're measuring our progress and how we're reflecting on it. Those are key aspects of the work and they're willing to work with faculty. They're willing to work with student affairs educators, all educators across the campus to say, it's a shared responsibility. What's your individual understanding? What's your shared responsibility? And how does that come together? And what do we need to change in the process? And as I say a lot in my presentations, we talk about growth mindset for our students. Equity work is growth mindset for us too, as equity practitioners. And we need to continuously be growing in our knowledge and our own sense-making for this work. Hello everyone, and welcome to this episode of Ingenious You, where we consider the most urgent and provocative topics that are reshaping higher education. And we get to speak with higher ed's most creative and visionary thinkers and doers. And in that regard, I am so excited about today's conversation with Dr. Tia Brown McNair, currently serving as vice president in the Office of Diversity, Equity and Student Success and executive director for the Truth, Racial Healing and Transformation Campus Centers at the Association of American Colleges and Universities in DC. Tia is no stranger to higher education. Her work in the equity and student success space not to mention her other research and faculty work have been pivotal. And it's no wonder that in March of 2020, diverse issues in higher ed named Tia, one of 35 outstanding women in recognition of her many, many contributions on behalf of others. We will, as always, include a link to her impressive bio in the show notes for all of our listeners. But for now, I'm eager to get the conversation going. So Tia, welcome to the Ingenious You community. Thank you so much, Melissa, for inviting me to be part of this community with you today. I'm excited for our conversation, so thank you. Now, we like to start our conversation finding out something about our guests. And in your case, uh, you have been described by others as someone who is very courageous, someone who's not afraid to tackle tough challenges, as an extraordinary leader, and someone who has made a positive difference in every community in which you have resided. So I wanna start by getting your take on whether this is a fair description, if you think so, and what the backstory is that results in who you are today. Well, I'm honored by that description. So let's just say that um, being courageous and being able to speak truth and, and contribute to change. I mean, that sounds exactly like where I wanna be and how I want to be described. So that's good. But I can tell you, I wasn't always like that. I think that there, it's, a, it's an evolving part of who I am. I think I used to be somebody that was, you know, early on in my career that didn't want to ruffle feathers, didn't want to um, disagree with those that were at higher levels. And then I realized, no, I'm not being true to myself. I'm not being true to who I am. So I think that there's always a way to, to, be, to speak your truth, to speak my truth, to really focus in on the work that I want to do in a way that is civil and has integrity and, and, and helps me stay true to my values and my beliefs. And I think that I'm, I'm at that place right now. Now, trust me, 
Am I always level-headed? I don't think so. <laughs> I think that there's some things I get really passionate about and I, and I still speak about those. And I think that others should do the same. I think that's what makes for um, a more vibrant conversations, but also will help us move to the transformation that we need. But we really have to do this in a way that we listen to one another, that we engage in deeper reflection and not just in a combative way. Mm, indeed, and that's such a great segue to my next question, uh, which again, you've been quoted as saying that colleges, universities sometimes jump into equity work without taking the time to lay the groundwork, which as you suggest, needs to include understanding of the variation in the language that we use to talk about equity. So can you give us some context for what you mean by this and why you think language is so important here? Yeah, you know, that's one of the reasons why we wrote the book, and I know we're going to talk about that in just a few minutes, but um, with the work with my co-authors, Estella Ben-Simone and Lindsay malcolm Picure, I mean, I mean, we've worked with institutions, hundreds of institutions across our various careers. And what we've seen in a constant way is that institutions have equity statements or DEI statements, and they, just like they have mission statements and vision statements. I mean, it's just something that is very common in almost every institution. And when we talk with institutions and ask them about how they translate what they say are their aspirational goals into practice, how are those values shared and understood across the institution? And not just to reiterate or say, this is what we said on the website, but actually what is it that someone does, what are they doing on a day-to-day in their day-to-day -day that actually supports that particular vision and mission and statement, DEI statement and work. That's when people start going, oh, I don't know. I don't, I don't know how that's going to happen. I don't know what I'm doing on a day-to-day. -day. And we need to think that there has to be higher levels of intentionality for bringing them together. Yeah, I mean, the intentionality is huge in this. So for me, that's, that's what I mean when we're talking about Institutions don't take the time to really think about what this means in practice for the people who are actually the educators on campus and doing this from day to day. And it, that, that clarity needs to be there. And that's really what you mean when you also talk about understanding the why behind equity mm -hmm. work, right? Yeah, um, why are we doing this? Why, why is this is part of one of my goals for that I'm held accountable for. Why is it that I'm actually, um, we do have these certain practices and policies? How are they tied in? Why is it that we're, what are our equity goals that we're trying to, I mean, really be clear about that because most institutions, they have aspirational statements, but what are your specific goals when it comes to certain departments, certain programs, and how does it all feed in together? It needs to be cohesive. And so when we're talking about the why, most people, at campuses besides a certain group, that whether if you're on the DEI committee or if you're in leadership, people struggle with understanding, well, why, how does this affect me? What is it that I need to do? Why is this something that should matter to me as an employee, as an educator at this institution? And I think that it's important for people to see that their work is relevant. Everything that we do on campus, every single person on the campus plays a role in helping to achieve those goals. And they need to understand why it matters. Uh, you are the lead author uh, of a very compelling, fairly recent book entitled From Equity Talk to Equity, Equity Walk. I have read the book. It is, a, it is a valuable 
resource. Why did you decide to write this book? Is there, you know, what are some of the motivations behind why you and your co-authors decided that this, this book was needed and needed now? Yeah. So first of all, let me just acknowledge Estella Bensamek who for many of us has been a mentor and a guide and somebody that has inspired us to be where we are right now in this work. So yes, I may be the lead author, but we all know that the learnings and the concepts, she has been an influence on so many of us, including Lindsay and myself. So I just want to make sure that that is acknowledged in there. And I think we were having these conversations because we were involved in a project. Um, that Lindsay and Estelle and I did as part of AEC and U Centennial, where we were working with 13 institutions. And we say that in the book about addressing equity and really focusing in on what institutions needed to do to achieve equity in student outcomes, equity in student learning, and equity in high impact practices, all those things. And then when we started reflecting on that and seeing the work that was happening or hadn't happened in the course of the project, we said, we really have to start helping institutions identify what they really need to do to translate the equity work into practice. And practice was such a big piece of this because we were doing this work at ACNU as part of our institutes, as part of our special projects. Estella and Lindsay were doing this work as part of the Center for Urban Education. But we're thinking we need to scale this. We need to share this in a way. And so we said, let's write a book that is very practice oriented, that talks about the things that we face, that we see all the time so that we can actually have a, a wider reach and it doesn't have to be where one of us needs to come to a campus and work with them, but let's, let's talk about what we've learned. So that was one of the reasons that we said we needed to do this particular book. And it was important for us to say, we can't keep spinning our wheels about this work. We can't just keep saying that we're doing it. And then institutions are calling on us and saying, okay, well, we need you to comment. We don't know how to do this. And not to say that the book is the answer for all of that, but it synthesizes some of our common experiences um, in, in doing this work. And, and we wanted to meet people where they are. That's why the first chapter was like, okay, we know most people are doing this. That's why I say, so we're gonna acknowledge that. We're not gonna say that that's bad. We're gonna say, this is good. We know that you're looking at disaggregated data and that you're looking at um, equity and hopefully learning and graduation and retention rates. But in order to really do this work on expanding our knowledge for racial equity, we've got to go deeper. Well, and I, I just to give a shout out uh, to you and to AAC and you, we were, we were speaking before that we started recording about the fact that you came to Baypath, um, the institution where I'm, I'm at, and uh, we purchased the book so that everybody could read the book uh, and, have that as a background for the context of the work that you did with us. And it was game changing. It was a, it was a very impactful time and a wonderful foundation. So I would encourage, I would encourage uh, other institutions, other leaders to, to uh, think about doing something similar at minimum, get the book and use it as a, as a book read um, for your staff. So thank you so now, much. And did you just notice that my dog stopped barking as soon as I stopped talking? Did you notice that? <laughs> your dog, your dog is tuned into the sound of your voice. <laughs> exactly. <laughs> so well let, let me go back. You mentioned the um the the wheel spinning, the um and it 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 
relates to uh, something that I wanted to ask you from your experience, from the experience of you and your co-authors. You've obviously bumped up against the barriers and you've probably seen just about everything in terms of what holds institutions back, what uh, holds leaders back in terms of walking the, the, the equity walk. Um, so can you talk a little bit about what some of those most common barriers are? What gets in the way on the college university campus in this regard? Yeah, so in the book, we definitely identify 10 obstacles, not to say that that's a definitive list, but we also identify that leadership is important, obviously. I mean, the leader has to be not only the voice and the physical presence of saying, this is why this is gonna be important. So that's a critical piece. The leader of an institution has to embody the equity goals and really have to focus on that. We also, um, with the obstacles that we have, we talk about the myth of universalism. We talk about not being able to really understand or see um, inequities in our routine practices or racial inequities in our routine practices and being able to identify them. We talk a lot about the need to not use, that we really need to not use um, coded language when we're talking about students and not just group everybody and underrepresented. Um, as underrepresented minorities call out Black, Indigenous, Latinx, I mean, Asian Americans, I mean, call out who you're talking about. Um, transfer students, I mean, just across the board, whatever it is, say this is who we're talking about and these groups are experiencing inequities. So we list several of those, but the key barriers to this is that, is that you don't have clarity in language and your goals. You don't have leadership that is supporting this work. You don't have accountability metrics to really hold people accountable that is not tied into people don't understand the why they, they need to be engaged in that. All the things that we've been talking about right up to this point have been obstacles that we've seen. And it takes all of them to come together. I'm gonna to keep saying it, it's that intentionality. It cannot be haphazard. It has to have structure but the structure shouldn't drive the process. It has to have truth telling. It has to have a way for people to listen to one another, to actually understand their narratives, to actually understand their experiences in a way that is saying, we are in this together, our common humanity, our interconnectedness matters, and our shared goals of helping the institution be better are extremely important. So those are just a couple of things. I mean, I know I could probably go on and on, but those are just a few things that we've seen as barriers and obstacles. And we need to address them and not just brush them off as, oh, it'll get dealt with. No, it, it needs to be dealt with upfront if you're gonna be doing this work. Mm. You know, in my, in my experience, the passive forms of resistance uh, to, to equity uh, work uh, seem to be the most difficult in many ways to deal with. I'm, I'm, Curious if you have any thoughts about this or any, any guidance for leaders in the trenches who are dealing with those more passive, those passive forms of resistance. That's an, I mean, and it's an interesting question because we know that that resistance is there. Just like you said, you know that it's gonna happen down there. Everybody's gonna be on board with the strategic priority of advancing racial equity. I mean, I mean we know that. That is not gonna be something that is gonna hit home for everyone at the institution. And I think it's important for you, us to acknowledge that that is happening, that that's a reality, that this journey is individual as well as shared.
But I also think that it's important for that not to stifle the progress in the work. And I think that if we focus so much on the passive resistance, instead of focusing on the work that we know is vital for us to achieve, then I think that we're, we may not bring them along. We may have to do some power mapping and figure out who within their circle can influence them to say, this is what we need to, because it may not be me. It may be someone who has more similarities and more alignment with their, who they see themselves as, as in their values. But I do think it's important for us to move forward towards progress because we know how vital this work is for the success of our students, for the success of our institutions, for helping students, as we say at ACU, be fully prepared for work life and productive citizenship. And we don't have time to focus all of our energies on the passive resistance. It's gonna be there. Our job as leaders is figuring out how to manage it in a way that doesn't hinder progress. And that may be figuring out who gets to be in leadership roles at the institution. There may be figuring out who gets to lead efforts. It may be figuring out, well, in performance appraisals, how are we holding people accountable if these are shared values? So I think there are specific things that the institution can translate from its values and aspirational statements into very tangible aspects of holding people accountable for the work. These are difficult days for higher education. Even before the pandemic, higher education was in a free fall. Colleges are closing or merging at an ever-increasing rate. Leaders are facing challenges from every direction. No wonder so many experts are calling for a new kind of leadership. The Baypath University Doctorate in Higher Ed Leadership and Organizational Studies, affectionately known as HELOS, was created for just this time and purpose. We asked seasoned leaders for their input and then designed the courses in response. The HELOS program prepares students to become highly effective, self-aware, adaptive leaders who know exactly how to leverage their institution's strengths and potential to create lasting change and enduring success. All coursework is online and students receive an abundance of personalized support from peers and from our expert faculty. And through the dissertation and practice, you will learn how to plan and implement a change process to address a real organizational problem. If you want to become a catalyst for change in higher education and have an impact, take the next step by visiting our website at baypath.edu edd. Tia, one of the things that I especially appreciate about your work is the importance that you have placed on building an equity-minded campus culture. As you write, this is very different from the other kinds of initiatives that we typically undertake on our campuses. It's much more developmental and certainly is not a one and done kind of effort. Can you speak to this? What do you mean by equity mindedness? And are there some specific things that leaders can do to nurture this on their campuses? Yeah, so first of all, let's let's credit Estella Ben-Simone coined the term in her work at the Center for Education on equity mindedness. I mean, so that is her work, her, her concept, and a gift 
I think, to us in higher education to really figure out what does it mean to be equity focused? What does it mean? But what does it mean to be equity minded, which really focuses on all racial equity? And I think for us, if you look at the definition and if you read even her prior articles and the work from the center, which is now part of the USC Race and Equity Center that Sean Harper leads, you'll see that understanding the history of race and racism is a, is a huge part of what it means to build an equity-minded culture. It also means being um, understanding the obstacles that our students are facing. So not from a deficit-minded perspective, but really understanding that the responsibility for educating our historically marginalized and our racially minoritized students falls on us as an institution, as educators, that we really have to do the examination of our policies and our practices and our structures to really figure out why are some students succeeding and why are others not succeeding. We really need to engage in collecting qualitative and quantitative data, which we call in the book, equity-minded sense-making, to really understand the how and the why some aspects of our work are serving uh, students better than others. And I say all the time, and I've been saying this more so lately, I'm coming into this work believing that people who work in higher education and educators are coming not with the intent to create an equitable learning environment. I'm just gonna say that I'm hoping that people are coming in with not intending to create an equitable learning environments, but when we do see inequities in student outcomes, it is our responsibility to ask those deeper questions about why and how. And I think becoming equity-minded culture is really understanding um, privilege, it's understanding bias, it's understanding history and social and political constructs, it's understanding how we've normalized one group as being our definition of excellence, um, and, and that's really looking at the concept of whiteness being privileged as what we see as how we define student success and not really thinking about the diversity of who our students are. And all of those pieces are coming together and we see equity very much as a form of corrective justice, as an anti-racist effort, as a way to address whiteness as part of something that has been normalized in higher education. So. Being equity-minded requires these deeper reflection. It requires truth-telling. It requires us to be honest with one another about privilege and bias within our system. So. Mm, thank you so much for unpacking that. And, uh, and Stella is one of the co-authors of the book. I'm, I, yes. I'm glad that you uh, have given her that credit. The work she has done and then continues to do is really very, very compelling. So. Um, now, you mentioned data, and again, you have another chapter in your book um, dedicated to communicating data. So can you say a little bit more about why, why you think that's important, and what are some examples in this regard? Yeah, so, the, and, and Lindsay took the lead on this particular chapter, so I acknowledge that, and the data piece is so important because we want to make data-informed decisions, but it's not just from a quantitative perspective, it's from a qualitative perspective, and we should be when we see inequities in student outcomes, we should be asking deeper questions about why and how, as I was talking about earlier. But I also think we have to understand how we have privileged um, student experiences, even within the way that we collect and present data. And I talk about this in a blog post that's on our um, AACNU blog, uh, on our website, aacu.org, 
where we need to decenter privilege, we need to decenter whiteness, even in the way that we present and examine data. So for example, oftentimes in higher education institutions, when we look at data that shows that's disaggregated, whether it's on graduation retention or whatever, we say very clearly, here's where a group of students are, often the majority students, here's where other students are, and we need to close that equity gap. And what we do when we say close an equity gap and say this is the aspirational goal based on where the majority students are, what we've done is privilege their performance as our definition of excellence, our definition of success. But as I say in the work that I've written and as I work with campuses, what if they're at 40%? What if they're at 50% retention or graduation or whatever? Is that really excellence? So why do we by default say we want to get everybody else? And we should, don't get me wrong, we should disaggregate data. As I said before in many presentations, we should disaggregate data on student outcomes. We should figure out what needs to happen in order to support the success of our students who are experiencing inequities. But we also need to set aspirational goals that don't privilege one group's performance over others, because by default, if we don't talk about that, if we don't process what that means, we're feeding in to a system of privilege. And it, it goes back to intentionality. Uh, that I, I'm hearing that over and over again in your, uh, in your comments and your examples and how mm -hmm. important it is, right? To be very clear-minded and intentional about the yes. practices that we're that we're putting in place, which I think for most higher ed administrators, leaders who are putting out so many fires these days, um, I think that's one of the challenges to really dedicate the time uh, to invest. And this is, you know, I think the point you make in your book, the importance of um, investing in a practice that is very intentional individually, but also as an institution. So, and I wanna come back to that in just a second. Um, but now I'm gonna ask you a question. This is, this is a dangerous question and you may not wanna answer it. It's sort of like asking a parent who your favorite child is, but- Oh, um, I know this question. But I, <laughs> but I, but I do, you know, because of all the experience, you've been on a lot of college campuses, you're, you've seen a lot of, um, you know, great examples and not so great examples. So uh, are you able to share uh, an example or two of an institution that you think is is really doing most things right in this regard that are um, that are are being intentional about walking the equity walk? I'm going to say this because I work at a national higher education membership based organization. I am not going to call any one campus out. I am going to tell you that there are campuses that are doing aspects, really positive work in aspects of what needs to happen. I have not been fully engaged with a campus that is doing everything right, because that's, that, that is not a reality. So I'm not going to tell you that. I will tell you that we feature campuses that are, have exemplary practices on our, at our AACNU News. We do it every month. So if you're interested in seeing campuses based on if they're doing equity or student learning or STEM education or global learning or across the board with assessment, we feature those campuses. And please look at aacu.org and look at our AACU news and we feature campus every single time. That is me being very political and staying <laughs> neutral. But I will say that based on what we've talked about before, the campuses that are making progress in doing this, they have a clear process for doing this work. 
They are involving stakeholders across multiple areas of the campus. There's leadership, there's clarity and goals, there's accountability. Those that are doing that and really lifting up not only just the talk, but really trying to say, this is how we're measuring and how we're measuring our progress and how we're reflecting on it. Those are key aspects of the work. And they're willing to work with faculty. They're willing to work with student affairs educators, all educators across the campus to say, it's a shared responsibility. What's your individual understanding? What's your shared responsibility? And how does that come together? And what do we need to change in the process? And as I say a lot in my presentations, we talk about growth mindset for our students. Equity work is growth mindset for us too, as equity practitioners. And we need to continuously be growing in our knowledge and our own sense-making for this work. Very fair. Very fair response. Thank and you. I would Thank agree, you. your, web, your website is fabulous. And uh, I've often used some of those examples um, in many of your areas in terms of trying to get a handle on who's doing a good job in one area or another. So thank you for, thank you for offering that. So now in your, in your, um, in your previous comments, you've really uh, teed me up really well for the last question that I wanted to ask you. And it, it has to do with chapter five of your book, where you consider how higher ed, higher ed leaders can acquire a practice that is centered on the pursuit of racial equity. And this is one of the chapters I am requiring for my, my doctoral mm -hmm. students, because um, I, I really like the focus on what can you do as an individual leader and this notion of, of a growth mindset and some of the things that you just mentioned are um, the sorts of things that we're focused on in helping to nurture the next generation of higher ed leaders who are in our classroom. Um, now you're very intentional and you've used this word a few times in our conversation, practice. Um, when I hear the word practice as a former musician, as a pianist, I think about sitting down at the piano and going through my scales day after day after day. If I'm an athlete, I think about, you know, the, you know, the, the day in and the day out routine of perfecting um, whatever that athletic uh, thing is that I'm trying to, to improve. So how does that relate to what you're talking about? If you think, and I, and I, want, I want you to answer this in terms of from the perspective of an individual leader, if you are in my classroom, you know, if you were lecturing to my, to my students, how would you describe this to them and how would you advise them in terms of how to go about instituting and maintaining a practice of equity mindedness? So this is something that Estella has taught me as, one, as my mentor, as someone who guides so many of us in this work. You're not gonna get it just by answering a, a few questions. You're not gonna get it just by reading the book or reading articles. You have to always think about that accountability in your head and in your mind. You always have to think about, all right, how is this translated? Just like you talked about practicing the piano and how do you excel as an expert in that? It requires that you're constantly engaged with this level of inquiry, that you're constantly engaged in this level of reflection and that you're not just assuming that, oh, I can get this um, just overnight because it doesn't happen that way. And so if you're a student, just like you study a discipline, 
you, this is a disciplinary area. This is, this is something that you can actually study and think about what is the process? What's the accountability? How am I asking questions? How am I engaging additional inquiry? All of these pieces together mean, how do you move from being a first-generation equity practitioner to a more seasoned practitioner? Where you do that by practice by asking these deeper questions. So when we talk about practices and policies and structures, yes, that's one thing in an institution. We're talking now about, like you said, Melissa, you as an individual, if you really wanna be a leader in this, if you're, you are constantly engaged in what does this mean by what I'm doing on a day-to-day -day basis? How is this in the way that I ask questions, the way that I, that I raise ideas, concepts, the way that I actually, um, engage with students, am I embodying, am I really representative of what it is that I say it means to be an equity-minded practitioner? Are there some strategies for raising one's self-awareness in this regard? You know, and again, I'm thinking about the blind spots we all have. So uh, does having a mentor help or, you know, are there some other things you can suggest to, just to, to tease out some of those um, the ways of thinking or behavior that we may not be aware of in our own everyday, everyday practice. Yeah, I think it's, I think it's a process of reflection. I think it's reading. I think it's engaged. Just like you study for anything else, and you study for any other area, whether it's science, math. I mean, philosophy, whatever. You're, you're, in, you read the people that are engaged in this work. You reflect upon it. It's the same process. And I think that it's important for people to understand that, that this is not something that you're just going to gloss over. I mean, I don't even know how many times we've heard people say, well, tell us how to do this. Well, how would you go about doing it for your, your disciplinary area, you know, for your discipline? It's the same concept. You have to study it. You have to ask those deeper questions. And I think that it's important. The good thing is, is there are a lot of scholars, there are a lot of practitioners out there, lots of resources that are available that just like you do a literature review for anything else, you do a literature review for the work on equity. And you do create a community and people that you can talk to and reflect with about the work. I'm not gonna necessarily say you need a mentor. I mean, I think everybody needs mentorship. I think that's important, but I don't want everybody saying, oh, I need to have an equity mentor. No, you need to do the work yourself. You need to read, you need to reflect, you need to engage in these deeper conversations. Great, thank you. That's very helpful. And your book is a great resource as a starting point in that regard. I had the best so. co-authors in the world, the best <laughs> writing team. We had so much, uh, I wouldn't say fun, but we had really deep conversations and reflection. And it is, again, it helped me grow as well. And I am so grateful for both of them to join me on this journey. So, yes. What a great thing to be able to say when one has uh, co-authored a book, because as you know, writing a book is never an easy, it's never an easy path. And so um, that's a wonderful thing to be able to say at the end of, at the, end of the, the journey. So yeah. Tia, we've come to the end of our time and I, I have to ask if there is anything else that I did not ask you that you want to add in closing the conversation. Well, Melissa, we, I think we've had a great conversation in this work. I, I just want everybody to, if you're listening to this, focus on your growth mindset, focus on where you are in this work. Don't measure yourself against anyone else. 
measure yourself against where you are and where you want to be and make your progress and measure your success against that. But let's move forward. Let's move forward. We can't sit where we are. We can't stay where we are if we're really gonna help students succeed. I'm Melissa Morse-Olson, and you've been listening to Ingenious You, the podcast where we speak with higher ed's most creative thinkers and doers. Ingenious You is a production of CELLUP, the Center for Higher Education Leadership and Innovative Practice at Baypath University. Check out our website at baypath.edu slash for information about our professional development opportunities, including our blog and our free monthly leading edge thinking in higher education webinar series. Be sure to rate and review Ingenious U wherever you get your podcasts and let your friends and colleagues know so that they too can join the Ingenious U community. That's all for now. Thanks so very much for listening. Stay healthy and be well.